Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the Watermark OC Church Sunday Message. Watermark is a generational community that is crazy passionate about starting a conversation about God, your relationships, and authentic love. If you're interested in getting more information, please click the link in the show notes for next steps. Thanks again for listening. It's our hope and prayer that this message would transform your life. I'm Ben. I'm uh, the lead pastor here at Watermark. I'm so glad that you're here. I echo Chelsea's statement entirely. And, uh, you know, I just like to affirm that what she's communicating is not just information, it's not just program, it's not just church calendar events. It's what it means to be involved in a movement. We're, we're on a mission from God. If you remember the quote from the old movie, we are in, in serious terms. We're on a mission from God. And all the things she finished talking about is what it means to be involved in that movement, to be involved in that mission. So it makes a great bit of difference. And like she said, we exist here to help you take those next best steps that are appropriate for you. We will make the time and we will do it. We are winding down a teaching series called Jesus is Not Boring. We're in a study in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, so-called. And we're about to turn the corner because it is Lent and Easter season. Next weekend, Bucky will be teaching on Palm Sunday, and then right around the corner from that, Good Friday and Easter, you have the times, you have the dates. It's a powerful, powerful time to be reminded of the good news. And we're going to read Matthew 7, 7 through 12 today, and and we're going to couple it with Luke 11. If you have your Bible apps, you can use those, or your print Bibles, you can get those out now. We're going to start in Matthew 7. It will also be on the screen for your purposes. Follow along as I read. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, although you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you good gifts to those who ask him? In everything, treat others as you would want them to treat you. For this fulfills the law and the prophets. Now, this morning, we're going to talk about shameless persistence in prayer. That's the big idea. We're going to couple Matthew 7 with Luke 11. But just to quickly move off of the, um, the final verse that we read there. Um, I don't know why I can't go back, but you can help me, Josh. Um, that last verse, in everything, treat others as you'd want to treat you, is what? Everyone say it with me. The... Golden rule. Some scripture is so pervasive, so pervasive, it's known in culture. And people have no idea where it comes from. But it's the word of God. It's just that true. It just works. It's just wisdom, right? And uh, I'm not going to teach on that. But anytime Jesus says all the law and the prophets hang on this one line, we listen, right? Because, by the way, the law and the prophets is the entire Old Testament. So if, if Jesus says this fulfills the previous X number of books in the Bible, we listen. He says it in a similar fashion in the other greatest command. Remember that verse, love God, love others as yourself. For this, the law and the prophets hang, Right? And so, powerful verse, important verse, relational component of what prayer impacts. But right now, we're going to talk about this kind of vertical relationship. I'm pointing, for the listener online, I'm pointing vertical and horizontal. Jesus always breaks us into the horizontal space relationally. But I want to talk about this vertical relationship. 
and the persistence of prayer. And the version from Luke 11 reads like this, more parable form. It's a great, great kind of illustrative example of of what Jesus wants to do here. Then teaching them more about prayer, he used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine's just arrived for a visit and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me. The door's locked for the night. My family and I are in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, keep knocking long enough He'll get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. Everyone say shameless persistence. Shameless persistence. So I tell you, keep on asking and you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you'll find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Your fathers, if you children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This longer form also answers the question that's on a lot of our minds. We've had some of our brothers and sisters in Christian tradition suggest, see, this is the verse that shows, pray and you get whatever you want. Just pray and ask and you can get whatever you want. Or at least, pray and ask and you'll get it. No. The verse does several strategic things. This is just a qualifier before I get into shameless persistence. But the verse does several things. It says what you need. It ends by saying the thing that you're going to get no matter what you ask for is the Holy Spirit, the gift to every believer. We've talked about in the last couple weeks how the real reward of relationship and spiritual disciplines is Christ himself. He's the great reward. When you pray, read the Bible, go to church, give, whatever it is, Jesus is the great reward. Talking about that. But here's another thing that's so kind of pounding about how we know this is not just what we want and that God's not the celestial slot machine, so-called. He talks about the father-son relationship. Now, if you don't have kids, I'm happy to tell you. I'm a father who has many kids, and do I give them everything they want? Hard pass. No, we don't give them everything they want. Why? Because that person grown up into an adult would be insufferable. Right? Yeah, we're not trying to form them into these little deviants where they got everything they want. No, we're going to say no to more things and we're going to say yes. But will we give them what they need? Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're most, most often inclined to do that, even as sinners or evil people. I, I, I'm telling you, if I had a dime piece for the amount of times that my five-year-old girls, just this last weekend, I forget where we were, the place and the time, but it was like, just ripping at my sleeves, you know? Just like tearing at you. Just, daddy, 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 daddy. We try to do this thing called the interrupt rule, and we train them. If you want to interrupt mom and dad who is in the middle of a conversation, you go and you put your hand on them. Quietly put your hand on them. They will put their hand on you, and you can wait until they acknowledge you. (laughs) Great in theory, right? Beautiful system we've set up. Some of them, like our five-year-olds, just doesn't really penetrate the noggin. And they're just ripping at the shirt sleeves, ripping at your shirt and your jacket and your sweatshirt, and they're just like, get now, I want it, and I want it now, give me, give me, give me. Though I'm not inclined to respond because of their what? Because of their shameless persistence, what will I do? I'll turn, I'll get down, I'll lock eyeballs, and I will acknowledge their request. Can you just track with me for a second? I'm telling you, that's real, that's real time, what happens. How much more your Father in heaven 
regardless of how you're praying, how you're screaming, kicking, yelling, regardless of the content or the product of what you're asking for, how much more will he be inclined to churn and go eyeball to eyeball, welcome you into his throne room, his presence, his master bedroom, and listen to you? He's inclined to listen to you. And I want you to be blessed by that. I think that's really clear here, but it's not always what we want, it's what we need. The message today is about shameless persistence in prayer. The asking, seeking, knocking kind of parable and language, I believe, is about repeat prayers, persistence in prayer. And there's one word that kind of this this whole verse hinges on. It's a very unique Greek word, only ever used here, anaidei, without shame. Shameless persistence. It's used only in Luke 11, verse 8. It literally means shamelessness. And I'm going to give you kind of a longer form definition here. Even you, another way to interpret it is unembarrassed boldness. Look at what the, the Greek definition shows us. No shame, without embarrassment. It's the shamelessness a faith-led believer has who is not to be halted by human fears. Even when others cry, overdone! and accuse us of being extreme or excessive. Sometimes I wish to God in that moment when my child's pulling on my sleeve, would you just have some shame? Don't you understand? We're in public. Like, keep it down. But it teach you some shame. But no. Kids don't understand that. They don't have the fear of man put into them yet. They don't get embarrassment of public shame. They're incessant. What would it look like for us to become that way in our prayer relationship with God? The text says that we ask, seek, knock. We could do a three-part sermon on just those three words because each one has a different component. The asking is like begging, craving, a desire. We thirst after the attention of the Father and getting our needs met from Him nowhere else like it's the next meal we're depending on. Do we seek like it's a quest of life and death? That's what the word seek is on about. To seek absolutely and universally. To seek in order to find like your life depended on it. Think of your best adventure TV show or movie series where it's just a quest or it's a riddle or it's something to solve or something to figure out. It's life or death in those movies. The same way in our prayer relationship with Jesus. Finally, knock. To knock is like a heavy blow. You can think of like battering ram, you know, just like. When I first read this, it was so problematic for me. Because I thought, I don't know if I've ever prayed like that in my life. It just challenged me to think of it in terms of like, where is this door? It's the door of heaven. Are we knocking on God's door, you guys? Are we pounding on the door of heaven with our persistent prayer requests? Let's explore our hearts this morning for just a second. And I've listed some maybe reasons why not. All relatable to myself. I've been there with you. Maybe we're not pounding on the door of heaven anymore because we don't really believe that God works supernaturally in this natural world that we live in, right? Does he break through the same way he did in the Bible? How could he? I haven't seen a miracle in at least 32 days. Is he still working that way supernaturally? Does he break natural laws so that his name will be glorified and people would come to know him? It's hard to keep that faith. Feel so often like a functional atheist. 
on paper I'm a believing and a professing Christian, but do I really expect him to break through supernaturally? Maybe it's because we're tired. We're just a little soul sick, you know? Just like tuckered out. Some of you have prayed that way. You have prayed with shameless persistence. You have prayed in such a way on your knees, begging and pleading with God to take an injury or illness away, to take an emotional wound away, to take a family of origin curse away from you and your life. And, you know, seven years is just too much to pray into something. Whatever the season was for you, it was just too much. We got tuckered out. Maybe we've lost faith, we're doubting God because he didn't answer the prayer the way we thought he should or the way we wanted, right? There's nothing that will jade us more. There's nothing that will lead to more disillusionment than when he doesn't answer the way we believed he would and he should. It can cause such a wedge. At this church, we're fighting our unbelief. (laughs) We're fighting our common doubts every day to try and agree with this statement that when we pray, things change. Even though we have unbelief, even though we have seeds of doubt, we battle every day. We're trying to believe and trust what the Bible says is true, that things change when we pray. Many times, just in and through us, by the way. He's so interested, you guys. God is so interested when we do the prayer exercise, when we pray as exercise, he's so interested in doing something in and through us changing our desires, saying something to us, if we'll listen, if we'll quiet our hearts just to listen. He wants to do something in us. But sometimes it's in a relationship or sometimes it's in your circumstances. Things move. Things change. Someone came forward this morning. We had prayed for them. This is an absolute advertisement for more prayer after service prayer. And a couple months ago, we prayed for their son who was on, uh, relapsing once again on, on hard drugs and had come home and no one knew what to do with them. We prayed and the report today was that this person is almost 30 days into their inpatient recovery care. Oh, maybe they just woke up from something. Maybe they just felt convicted one more. Maybe they just got sick of their predicament. Maybe someone prayed and things changed in the supernatural realm. Maybe that too. You can choose what you agree with. You want, to agree that it, you want to agree with the fact that it was natural purposes? You want to agree with it, the fact that we were cooperating with God's will on earth and something happened? That's one example of three prayer requests that have just been breakthroughs in the last month. We're just praising God for his power and the fact he's still interested in working with us here on earth. Many times we're tuckered out of praying with persistence because we're just sick of how much time it takes. <laughs> it just requires too much patience, you know? Have you ever thought about what God could do through us or in our lives in a year? What could God do in our lives, in our faith, in our relationships in three years? How about given five years of persistent prayer, what could he do? Ten years? We had an elder who's one of the leaders of the church, a volunteer leader, and we would meet quarterly. And I remember when I was just you know, five, six years ago, being trained and groomed to be a lead pastor. And, and he said, Ben, I want to challenge you to start thinking about 10-year goals. I thought, dude, 10 years? Bro, I don't even know if tomorrow is guaranteed. What do you mean 10 years? I gotta, what, I, what's tomorrow going to hold for me? I got to just get stuff done. I got kids. I got work. I got stress. I got demands coming at me. 10 years? That was, like I said, five or six years ago. And every year, his wisdom is making more and more sense to me. 
Every year that, that God affords me to be on this planet, I think more and more, I've been thinking too nearsighted. What about 20 years? What could God do in 20 years? I lead this uh, uh, deacons and elders in training small group Bible study, and we had a meeting two Tuesdays ago, and the topic of our lesson that day was Necessary Endings and New Beginnings, a chapter from Pete Scazzaro's great book. All of our leaders go through it. And a case study in that chapter was on succession. You know, when uh, we have leadership transitions in the marketplace or in church and nonprofit, handing the leadership baton to the next generation of leaders. And Drake, the guy who was facilitating that night, turned, kind of in the middle of this flow, he turned to me and said, so Ben, you got your succession plan ready? And I mean, even if you're new, you can see the humor in that question, right? I mean, like, look at me, man. I mean, come on, I'm a spring chicken, right? I mean, come on, I just, I just, we just did suggestions like two years ago with my father-in-law and me. You know, I mean, that's hilarious, isn't it? My answer to Drake's question was nonetheless ready and clear and simple. I said, in the next 20 years, I'll begin the multi-year process of handing over leadership to my successor. That's the answer. That's the right answer. In order for the church to stay vital and healthy, if you believe in generational faith, which is God's whole promise to Abraham, the generations will be blessed through you, but you got to lay it down and hand it over. And I know every one of us should be thinking that way all the time. I don't care what leadership position you're in. You're maybe just leading yourself, party of one. Great. You have influence with at least one other person. Who's going to lead them when you're gone? So it was a slick answer to respond to my men's group in that moment. But what I didn't share with those guys was kind of what happened uh, over the next day and into the next night. I was really thinking about that plan. Like, 20 years sounds so quick to me now. It'll be over in a blink of an eye. 20 years. Better be intentional, Ben. 20 years. Maybe that's not too far away to start planning, start praying. Let's take this idea of 10-year goals and, and what could God do given enough time and extend it to this building we're sitting in right now. It's such a wonderful story that we could cover over many Sundays of how we came to inhabit this building 10 years ago, September. We celebrated our 10-year anniversary. And uh, over the years, we've been basically a small to medium-sized church occupying about a 45,000-square-foot building. If you can find another small to medium-sized church that meets in a building like that, I'd love to meet them and talk more. It's a rarity, and it's been an act of God. He's allowed us to inhabit the space. And it's not free. Many times we think church is free or the services and programs and events is free. No, no, God has provided a unique and kind of um, incredibly ingenious ways to let us gather in this space. And, and eternal work has been done because of this building. Is the building eternal? The Bible pretty much settles that question. The brick and mortar of the building will not last forever, but work done in the kingdom will last forever. The spiritual realm will go on for eternity. This ministry training center, this, this missionary training center, is a great place, a venue, for training up Believers in the way that they should go and watching the world change. And in September, actually six months before September, God gave us a vision to see lives change, to see our world transformed in an amazing way. And that vision was something we call Building for Sending. Building for Sending is a, is a fundraising movement. It's not just about the funds, it's a movement of prayer and people. 
And if you're new to the church today, yes, you heard the word fundraiser, so you have at least two choices of how to think about that. Man, I'm newer to the church. Uh, gee, another church asking for my money. How novel. Or you could say, and I want to give you good reason to say this, you could say, man, I visited this church at an incredibly exciting time. There's a place for me in this movement. And that's true. Whether this is your first Sunday, you've been here four Sundays, or you've been here the last 10 years, there's a place for you in this movement, in prayer, in time given, and yes, even in financial gifts. But unless we're willing to depend on him with shameless persistence, we'll never build anything that will outlast us. What we want to do in building for sending, this building and fundraising campaign, is to build things that outlast us. Succession, way beyond us. When we're dead and gone, they will outlive us and outlast us. And if we do it without God, it would be like, it would be like building a freeway alone. Have you ever seen a freeway built before? Come on, think about it. Has anyone traveled the 405 in the last five years? If you've traveled the 405 in the last five years, you've, before your eyes, watched a modern marvel. These towering thousand tons of steel and concrete just resurrected over your head as you're commuting every day. And I live at Harbor in the 405 in Costa Mesa, so it's like a pretty key part of the job. And over the years, it's been such a working illustration of faith for me and what's possible. And I'll see the scaffolding going up 40, 50 feet in these temporary staircases. It just always blows my mind. Like, you're going to build a staircase that's up to code, perfectly safe, super strong, and probably last years, and you're going to take it down when the job is over? And how many of those staircases did you build just to have safe function of your build project? Like, so many tiny little thoughts like that go through my head. And I see them, you know, leaving men's group at 10 p.m., my latest night of the week, and I'm driving home, and they're just firing up these huge lights to project the light of day. So what? So the guys can start their graveyard shift. And that's the work of men over five years. An amazing, amazing feat. That's man's tools, man's methods, man's ways. You guys, we have such greater tools and methods. We have persistence in prayer to help build. And we are building. And we're building a kingdom that will last. And let me just tell you, when the Lord builds that house, nobody can tear it down. There will be no temporary structure. There will be no just short-term use for it. It'll last forever. Forever. When I was prepping this message, the, the, the story of Nehemiah came to my attention. And the context for Nehemiah, really quick, is a, is a story of a man who is called to build. And Nehemiah and the Jews, in this point in history, had been um, cast out into a foreign nation, exile. And, and, and somehow they've, this is beautiful, passage, you know, in Jeremiah 29. There's more to that chapter than just our favorite verse. God says, I heard their prayers. I heard their prayers. Their exile, your exile will not last forever. I heard your prayers. And he picks this small remnant of believers to go back to the holy city and build back up the walls. Because after being ransacked, it was in disrepair. And Nehemiah is the leader of this crew. And, and, and he went and he built this hall, which was a, a feat. And the Bible says he, that, that together they built it in 52 days, this wall. The question is, what was the key to their success? 
Nehemiah chapter 6 says, So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul, in just 52 days. When all our enemies heard and all the nations who were around us saw this, they were greatly disheartened. They knew that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. To the answer of the question, what was the key to their success? God did the work. I could stop there, but I'll go on. God did the work, does the work, and you know what else? He's looking for willing participants to do the work with him. Let us not miss that fact. That God blessed the hands of the workers, Nehemiah and his team, on the scaffolding, on the swings, on the wall. But they had to say, yes, here I am, Lord, send me. And he blessed their efforts. And together with God, the partnership of heaven, persistent prayer, persistent work, God comes and he helps us. What could we do in three years to build the kingdom in this building? I think it's really true what someone said. Maybe you've heard this quote before. It absolutely works in the spiritual realm as well. We overestimate what we could do in a week, but we underestimate what we could do in a year. Isn't that so relatable? When was the last time you overestimated what you could do in a week? Okay, just say it. Last week. It was last week. (laughs) When was the last week that you overestimated what you could do? It was last week. That was last week that we overestimated what we could do. And I've lived it all the time. We jam-pack our weeks and we clock out in the weekend so bummed we didn't get it all done, right? Man, I knew I was going to get that project finished. I was going to be ahead of the timeline. I was going to have that conversation with that person. Shoot, it's the weekend again. And it's so pervasive in the culture, this hurry-up, microwave vision for our work and our lives and our abilities. Like it'll all be done in the course of seven days or, or even one day. It's a defeating feeling, and I've had that experience. But this morning, we're, we're begging the question, what could be possible in one, three, five, ten, twenty years? The corporate vision that's helped me snap out of that weekly rat race, it's kind of selfish because I, I have to live it every day and every week, but building for sending has been a key part of my job these last five, six months. And, and that thing just snaps me out of whatever week I'm sitting in. Because building for sending is about building something that will outlast me and outlast us. I'm so thankful I have those to-do lists because they're a constant reminder that it's not just about this seven-day period. And, And in that same vein, I'd like to give you guys an update on this building campaign, this vision, this movement. And it's appropriate that we do so because we're about at the six-month mark. And so this is almost a town hall meeting, if you will. Remember, the church is for us, by us. The church doesn't belong to me. It doesn't even belong to the elders, though the elders are your representatives as volunteer lay people. It's our community organization, for us, by us. The blessing of the Holy Spirit, right? And so you should care about what these updates are because we all should have an invested interest because it's, it's, it's God's stuff. Even the finances, right? It's God's stuff, so we care we're stewarding God's stuff. And I want to give you first the financial outline of what we've done so far in this campaign. Working left to right, you can see on the far left column, the total dollars pledged that people have said, I promise to bring this over the next year or so, is uh, 644998 which I still see that number. I'm just wowed and amazed at what God has done and how he's used you all in your generosity. It's a powerful number to me and I'll never let that go. One of the, before you read ahead, and I know you can see it all really fast, 
one of the pledges we made as leaders in this campaign was to celebrate every small, medium, and large gift. (laughs) And we made a vow that this would be fun. I know money matters make us squirm a little bit in our chairs. He's not even talking about the church. You guys live your own money matters every day. You think that we're deluded into thinking that six days a week you're thinking about what's going to happen at church Sunday? No. We're thinking about work. We're thinking about finances. We're thinking about family. We're thinking about friends. We're thinking about our kids. So I know that money dominates. But our vow was, this is a, as a money issue, we're going to have fun. We're going to celebrate every gift that comes in. And so when I see that, I'm still celebrating and praising God for what he's done. It's powerful. The total funds that have actually hit the bank, 423,104. Total amount that we've spent, 9357. And then that big, fat, glaring, beautiful green number, about a million dollars still to raise. Isn't that great? Isn't that fun? Isn't that amazing? Who would think? A million bucks. No big deal. 52 days, God builds the wall. 52 days, God builds the wall. What's $1.5, $1.6 million in the scope of human history, in the scope of the history of the church and what God has built for eternal purposes? What's $1.6 million? A drop. It's a drop. It's a drop for him. He just wants to show us how he can prove that to us in our hearts by participating. He'll prove in our hearts what it feels like to trust the process of joining this movement. You know, I was thinking about even the math on this. This has been a prayer goal because I, we as an elder team and a, and a lead team on the staff, we sought counsel and wisdom from other pastors who have done this half a dozen times. Some pastors have done campaigns like this, believe me, for, for many, many more millions. And they're great wisdom givers and they're great mentors to me personally. And, and they coach you and teach you, hey, a lot of the gifts are going to come from a very few people. And that makes sense, right? Because there's a wealthy few, even in our church or in Southern California, even in Orange County, there's a wealthy few. And praise God for those gifts. You want to know the second vow that we made amongst ourselves as elders and lead team members? That we were going to do this for the hearts of everybody in the church. Every gift, small, medium, and large, no matter, no matter what the size was, when we give, God gets our hearts. And that was such a compelling factor for doing this. If God could get our hearts because we give our precious things, I said, that's it, let's do it. Let's go. Because God's going to get more people's hearts. And that was all the motivation we needed. That was such a compelling force. And I want to give that in even more practical terms. You know, the average person spends $2,000 a year on coffee budget. And you know we love coffee. We love our coffee partnership. We love you who came here from the coffee shop. Thank God for you. So glad you're here today. But that is a very real figure, about 2K a year on coffee alone. If our 400 members at Watermark gave $1,000, do you know what that would do to that balance? (laughs) Are you tracking with me? I know some of us are like, 1,000 bucks? Dude, I don't have that. And then we will proceed to find it, to spend on whatever else that we need that year. But I'm talking about a one-time gift of $1,000 for every household at Watermark, 400K like that. And forget the gifts, God would get your heart in a different kind of way than you've ever experienced before when you let go of your precious things. It's about your heart, guys. That's what it's always been about. That's what it's always going to be about. I want to tell you an update. There's some practical things we need to celebrate this morning of where these dollars are going and how we're doing on our project management. And so this next picture will show you all five of the things we were trying to do that God spoke to the elders about, you know, six to nine months ago. And... um, the first one was build out 5,000 square feet of space for a ministry business partner. The name of that business is Burn Boot Camp. And they're, uh, 
a gym that's operated by a couple of our church members and leaders. They're Christian business owners. They've been in business for years. They're currently reaching three or 400 households a month, mostly women that work out at this gym. They have an established business, a track record of success, and they love sharing the gospel with their members. They love making an eternal difference with their members that go to their gym. And they are going to move in, in a few short weeks, just two walls over in our building, a space that they're building out right now. And I'm here to update you, by a wonder of God, their MCUP, their conditional use permit, was approved at the end of last week, which is a huge breakthrough, a huge breakthrough. (laughs) I take it by the level of applause. Some of us are not familiar with how city government works in issuing permits. And let me just explain very quickly that this is not just a man-made deal, but that God has blessed our efforts and he has been intimately involved in this project. The average project to issue, for the city to issue, even a sweet city like Costa Mesa, and we have great architects who work with Costa Mesa, and we're doing our paperwork really good so it can expedite the process, okay? Three months it took them to issue our permit. The average fastest would be six months. You can check with other counties in LA and Orange County. We're talking not months, but years. And in three months... God graced us with an approved permit so that we could do business. And I could go on and on and on about adversaries and people who opposed the permit when it was submitted and neighbors who protested and said, no way is that gym going to take our parking spaces. That all happened. That was all real. It never should have came through, but by the grace of God, it is. And we're going to have these partners on campus. And just like, yes, and just like God used the coffee shop to reach our neighbors and friends, he'll use the gym to reach our neighbors and friends. And some people have already been here from the gym, and maybe you're here from the gym, and we're so thankful that you're joining our community. The thing you can pray for is that they'll be able to open in the next couple weeks, and that will require another miraculous detail. So you can pray for our partners there. Second one says, build out a second worship sanctuary for our Spanish-speaking neighbors. And that's a build, it's our building, and it's a parcel just beyond the bathrooms in that back corner. God gave us a vision for one church, two languages. Let me back up and explain something to you. A healthy church in Orange County reflects its neighborhood. A healthy, flourishing church reflects its neighborhood. Our neighborhood is 40 to 50% Latino or Spanish speakers. We have a heart for a healthy, flourishing church. And there's a need, you guys. There's such a tremendous need of our Latino or Spanish-speaking neighbors who are being taken advantage of every day from small, medium, and large ways because of language barrier, because of so many different factors. And we have a a Spanish-speaking pastor, Francisco. He's been our partner for over 10 years. And there's already a Spanish church meeting next door because that was the building that was available for them. And they will move. Their name is Mission El Camino, or MEC. When we go to Rosarito and we work with the church there, that was all through MEC and Pastor Francisco. When that building is done and built out, they will finally, after 10 long years of persistent prayer, they will finally have a permanent home to gather and worship and praise God. And when you come on the campus, you'll have first gen, second gen Spanish-speaking homes will have the option to attend English-speaking service at 1030 or Spanish-speaking service at 1030. And our kids' ministries will be completely combined. Our staff will be working together and we'll have that dual option on campus and it will be a huge grace for that community in need. And so we're just in the beginning phases of getting our volunteer team together who have experience with contractors and architects and working with the city. And we're finalizing that team before we continue down the road of interviewing contractors 
and drafting updated plans with our architect, Tony. Tony, the architect. He's a wonderful Christian man. He attends church down the street. He's worked in Costa Mesa for 20 years. So you can pray for all those details. Number three, build out more of the church space to serve Lion and Lamb workers and customers. So Lion and Lamb, again, they're church members, church leaders. Rick and Rosie are the operators of Lion and Lamb. And together we launched this coffee shop over two years ago, and God has used it in an amazing way. We estimate that at least somewhere between 15 and 25% of all new church members are directly from the coffee shop. I mean, that's an insane number if you think about it. When we came together for that vision to use coffee to reach people, we were, it was a hope and a prayer, I'll be honest. I was we're leading the charge with Rick and Rosie, and it was a hope and a prayer. Like, we should do this if we get even one new guest at church per month. One new guest, let's do it. We're seeing half a dozen new guests per service, per service from the coffee shop. God has done that, and his name should be praised and glorified. And they, after the last two years of successful business, they have opened what is essentially a second location for them. It's not a storefront. It's a roastery. It's right down the street off of Airway, right over here in Irvine, so close you can almost walk. And so pray for them as they open the roastery. And you can pray for us as we, part of our vision was to do shared office space with the coffee shop out here in the adjoining rooms that are next to the lobby. Every day, you guys, Monday to Friday, that lobby is filled with coffee customers. Some people are churned away because there's not enough chairs. Every race, every gender, every ethnicity, every religion, we've watched people lay out their prayer carpets and do their their five-time-a-day Islamic prayer in that lobby. That's happening. God has done amazing things. And we know that we're going to give more square footage to the coffee shop for more of these amazing eternal impact opportunities. The fourth thing, build out the kids' ministry warehouse into a finished multi-purpose space for the next generation. This about 5,000 square foot parcel is just on the other side of this wall. And, and some of you may have seen it because you accidentally walked back there past the bathrooms. If you have kids, you know, we let the kids run around in there. It's just a blank, empty box. Few more fun things than a blank, empty box. Few more things that stimulate the imagination for what God could do than a blank, empty warehouse. So fun to dream of what's going to happen. The update, as you can see on the screen, is that uh, it's basically a phase one, phase two scenario. We're going to use our resources to invest in the worship sanctuary for MEC. And while that's going on, and we're directing attention and hours and money towards that project, we are going to rent this box out to a tenant, to a company that does pool storage. And those rents will really help us recoup the square footage for a year's time. They've just signed a year-long lease, and at the end of that time, we'll, we'll renegotiate to reclaim it and build it out for the next generation. Why does it matter that we invest in the next generation? Do you understand what kind of battles that an eight-year-old is fighting today? Most of us are grown adults in the room today, and we're outside the spin cycle of what's true, what's not, I don't know, I feel tugged in so many directions, my friends are really influencing me, and these people who are the leaders where I live, work, and play, the little child says, they're telling me that this is normal, and this is the way I should live, and this is the, the, the rule and not the exception. If you were placed in that environment, you could probably hold your own. Seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old. By the grace of God, he has sent us this new team of child care workers, our staff, our directors who work in those kids' classrooms even now. And what is the number one line item of their job description? 
to train children in biblical doctrine so that they can fight and win the idea battles that they're going to face when they grow up. They're going to fight and win the idea battles they're fighting now. Today, they're fighting these battles. Every day they go to school and friends, they're fighting these idea battles. We will train them in the way that they should go, and there will be, this will be the strongest discipleship program the world has ever seen. No one will beat out our kids. When we, when we release them as age 18, they will be foot soldiers for the Lord. They will know how to fight and win the battles that come their way. We can't let these other sects, these other religions, these other religious groups beat us out in caring for training our young people. There's a great book that I'm reading right now. I recommend it to all of you, even if you don't have kids. It's called Intentional, The Intentional Father by a great pastor in New York called John Tyson. Get it. Read it. Start thinking about it right now. It'll help you, even if you don't have kids, with their 20-year plan. And he, he, he says, man, I wish we could do better with our kids. What can we do? And he looked across town, and he saw the strongest kids in the world were Mormons. He started asking questions. What is it that these Mormons are doing that's got their kids sticking with their faith when they go to college and beyond? For four years in high school, you know who's up at 6 a.m. going to seminary? A Mormon teenager. 6 a.m. for four years, they're up, and they're stuttering, they're they're studying the Bible, and yes, some other stuff that's not the Bible, that's not so helpful. And then when they graduate, what are they inclined to do? What does the culture and their religious family tell them is the normal thing to do? They go on a missions trip. We will not let the hundred or so children that call Watermark their church home, we will not let them be beat out by anyone who's got a stronger set of dogma or doctrine or relational authentic gospel than what God is seeking to do here and now at this place. We have a hundred arrows and we're going to release them into the world to partner with God in redeeming it. hundred kids are a part of Watermark right now. hundred kids. And we want to train them up in shameless persistence. Last one is to build a church planning war chest. That's a fund for a future city in need of the gospel. We're praying that by the fall, we would have one church planning resident, a church planner who feels called to start a new church for a city in need that doesn't have a healthy, flourishing church in its neighborhood. I know in Orange County, we have a church on every corner. Trust me, I know it. In Costa Mesa alone, we have 50 plus pretty good churches. But there are cities in California and in other states that don't have a healthy church on their corner. We're praying and believing that God will send us a church planner. Come fall, we will train them up and equip them, and we will send them with a financial gift to bless a city in need of the gospel. And those are the ways you can pray. That's the update of our campaign, this movement that God has spoken into our church. As the band comes up, I just want to give you a couple things to pray and process through. And I'm going to show you one more time just the top-line verse from um, uh, Matthew chapter 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Are we begging and craving for God's will to be done? Are we seeking like a life or death quest? Quest that God has put us on. Are we we pounding on the door of heaven? Like tomorrow is not guaranteed. Are we investing our time, our talent, our treasure in things that will outlast us? And finally, I just want to make it even more practical for you to this week process and pray through these questions. 
What has you pounding on the door of heaven right now? In your personal life too. (laughs) That matters to us too. Not just in this corporate vision, but in your personal lives. What has you pounding on the door of heaven? Don't give up. Don't give up. What's God calling you to build that will outlive you? What comfort is God calling you to sacrifice for this vision that he's given you personally and he's given us corporately as a church? I want to share one more anecdote before we go to communion about my wife and my personal journey towards bringing financial gifts to the church. Not to show off or to be braggadocious, but you'll see in our process, we're just like you. That's why I want to share this story. We have the same doubts, questions, and concerns that you have. And I'll never forget about uh, nine years ago, I was working at this church as a youth pastor and one of the associate pastors, Eric Markle, sat me down and we had this conversation about tithes, gifts, and offerings. And his posture was humble and thoughtful. He led with questions, not judgmental demands. And he gave me and my wife just some things to pray about. And we prayed and we considered this challenge and we started giving regularly. I don't think we gave 10% overnight. I believe we just started giving regularly for what we saw fit. And then over time, it became a little easier to work our way to 10%. And by the way, that first gift is the hardest. So hard to go from giving nothing to giving something. To give your first time gift, so hard. And a little hard still to go from one gift to regular gifts. It's hard. It requires trusting God with next month's bills. It's, it's a trust and faith journey, totally. And so we started that process together. And then when Building for Sending came down from heaven <laughs> as a vision that God was breathing into the elders and to our staff, we prayed again, Riley and I, my wife and I just prayed and asked God, we can't possibly in authenticity go before the church and ask them to sacrificially give, to give uncomfortably, to give when that money could go somewhere else for a need unless we're willing to risk it all ourselves. And, and the Lord totally convicted us. Riley and I have our main income stream from the church that is a generous salary. And from that, 10% goes right back to the church. But there was always a second income stream that came to us from the county. Riley and I have adopted children through the county of Orange and they pay families for each child that's adopted. We have four kids and there's actually a very generous sum that comes to us even from the county. And we'd never tithed on that money until now. And those dollars go for very practical needs, don't they? Childcare and diapers and food upon food upon food upon food. But the Lord spoke with that still small, gracious, not guilty, not judgmental voice who said, you can trust me with this extra amount. And so we're in this journey with you guys. I would never ask anyone or invite anyone into something I wasn't willing to test myself. And that's what Malachi 3 says, test the Lord in this. And we're going to get a taste of what it means to be a part of a movement. No movement worth joining is comfortable. <laughs> if you want to be a part of a movement, it's going to be costly. I urge you to think and pray this week. Let's pray now and go into communion. Jesus, thank you so much for this challenging word from the mouth of Jesus about persistent prayer, shameless, unembarrassed prayer. God, That's the type of life I want. That's the type of prayer life I want, Jesus. I know I'm not alone. God, help us as we go to the communion table, um, set a fire to our faith, reignite our faith and our belief. God, as we come to the table and we um, renew our vows with you, Jesus, form in us a new heart.
Thank you for your forgiveness and grace that we celebrate in communion. Do a new thing in us. Do a new thing in us, God, as we go to communion. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're ready during this song, go to the back two tables, the front two tables, go together alone and enjoy this time. We hope that this message has challenged and encouraged you. If you need prayer, would like to join a small group community, or are interested in partnering with our work throughout Costa Mesa and Orange County, please go to watermarkoc.com. We would love to start a conversation.